Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Stories for the Road. One of the most fascinating times in American history, to me, is the early settlement of Virginia, which in 1607 comprised a huge swath of land that took in North Carolina, Virginia, and surrounding areas. I've read up on it quite a bit, including John Smith's writings and those of others who were there. I've visited the museums at Jamestown a number of times. I've written a documentary on it. And I've had the opportunity to sit down on the back porch of the home of a Pamunkey tribal leader whose home sits on a bluff overlooking a wide expanse of York River that runs through their reservation and had the time to share a beer and conversation with him about Indian affairs. I've seen a number of movies and documentaries on the subject of Captain Smith and Jamestown and Pocahontas, but to me, they all seem to miss the color and drama of what really happened. For instance, Pocahontas was not a supple 25-year-old woman involved in a romantic relationship with Captain Smith. And the first group of colonists did not all get along and were often at each other's throats. Men starved and died. Indians attacked, often. Smith was nearly hung by powerful members of the expedition who resented his presence. Of them all, he was the least interested in digging and refining gold from the mud, which consumed most of the group's time. And there were two distinct groups, the ones who considered themselves to be aristocracy and those who were laborers and commoners. This last group admired Smith's leadership and stuck with him. The others wanted him dead or gone. I've seen critiques of John Smith that accuse him of being a liar and a blowhard, and read treatises about how the arrival of the white man on the eastern shores of North America brought disease and war to the peaceful Indians there. None of this is true. I like to search 19th century documents for accurate historical accounts that were done prior to the days of political correctness and historical bleaching that turns huge dramatic events into mere footnotes for high school and college class consumption between their social training and sensitivity courses and seminars. The real story of John Smith and England's attempts to colonize Virginia is a huge drama that deserves to be told. Smith was picked for the Jamestown expedition because he was a proven warrior and leader of men. The organizers of the expedition spent months training him beforehand in cartography and what they learned of Indian language and customs from previous expeditions to Roanoke. That training in map making resulted in Smith and company mapping the entire Chesapeake Bay and incidentally naming many points of interest after his crew of men who accompanied him as well as giving them Indian names that they'd picked up from a captured interpreter. And those names and geographical points of interest are still on the maps today. There was a group of men on that voyage to Virginia who immediately disliked and ostracized Smith, fearing his abilities and his strong personality and objectives, which contrasted their own, which, for the most part, was to find and refine gold and return to England as wealthy men. His was to discover, map, and help to start a thriving colony for England. He could have cared less about the gold and called them fools to their faces. I want to share with you a great story of England's first permanent settlement in North America and of the man who deserves most credit for making it happen, John Smith. The story I found was written in 1879 by Edward Eggleston and his wife Lily. 
and taken from John Smith's general history and the accounts of Wingfield, Strachey, Smith's true relation, Stitt's history of Virginia, and Neal's letters of the Virginia Company. And at certain points in the story, I'll add from other research. I hope you enjoy this multi-part, truly accurate look at a history which tends to get overlooked and forgotten by many. Gold and a route to the East Indies were the dominant ideas in the minds of the early discoverers and explorers of the American continent. Columbus believed to the day of his death that the islands which he had discovered were but the outskirts of Eastern Asia. He valued his discovery only as a means of opening a profitable traffic with the East. English commercial ambition long sought an easy route to the East Indies. John Cabot, a Venetian, undertook the first voyage of discovery sent to the New World from England. In 1497, only five years after the first West Indian discovery of Columbus, Cabot reached the shores of America, or the territory of the Grand Cham in Asia, as he supposed, and returned home, the first discoverer of the American continent. In the following year, while the aged Columbus sailed to the mainland of South America, and the daring young Vasco da Gama of Portugal rounded the Cape of Good Hope and sailed with streamers flying and trumpets sounding into the harbor of Calcutta. The Venetian discoverer's son, Sebastian Cabot, a young man barely 21 years old, explored the coast of North America from Newfoundland as far south as Chesapeake Bay. Nevertheless, he considered his voyage a failure, since he'd not discovered the shortest route to Cathay in Japan, which he reasoned would be by way of the far north. For many years after this, while Spain was making rich conquests in Mexico and Central America, England had no connection with the New World except through the fisheries of Newfoundland, which were frequented by her vessels. In the 16th century, the world's work seemed to the men of that day almost accomplished. An English navigator named Martin Frobisher deemed the discovery of a northwestern passage to Asia the only thing in the world that was left undone by which a notable mind might be made famous and fortunate. The making of this discovery was the desire of Frobisher's heart. For 15 years he solicited help for his project, but in vain. He was at last aided by Dudley, Earl of Warwick, and in 1576, with a fleet of two small barks and a pinnace, he prepared to cross the ocean. Queen Elizabeth sent a message of approbation to Frobisher and waved her hand as the little fleet dropped down the Thames. The pinnace of but ten tons burden was soon lost in a storm, and the frightened sailors in one of the other vessels turned homeward, leaving Frobisher to pursue his course alone. In his small bark he discovered Labrador and reached an inlet north of Hudson's Bay. He imagined the land on the north to be Asia, that on the south to be America, and that the strait which he discovered led into the Pacific. Frobisher landed on an Arctic island which he took possession of in the name of Elizabeth and gathered some stones with which he returned home. One of these stones was pronounced by the clumsy London refiners of that day to contain gold. Immediately there were men who desired to purchase these northern gold lands from Queen Elizabeth, but Frobisher was provided with a fleet for the purpose of securing the treasure. Volunteers were plenty for this expedition. The Queen, who had vouchsafed only royal favor to the voyage of discovery, 
set a large ship of her own on the voyage for gold. With a merry wind, they sailed from England, but they encountered much danger from icebergs before the shores of America were reached. This great fleet did not penetrate so far as Frobisher had in his little bark. They contented themselves with an island where there were heaps of earth, which to their eyes plainly contained gold. More than this, the island abounded in spiders, and spiders were true signs of a great ore of gold. Admiral and men toiled like slaves to load the vessels with common earth, as the faith of gold dreamers was unshaken. A colony must be planted in this land of frost in order to secure so rich a country to England. Gentlemen's sons volunteered. Elizabeth bore part of the expense, and in 1578, fifteen vessels set sail, three to remain with the settlement, and twelve to hasten back with the coveted oar. The fleet became entangled among great icebergs melting in the summer's sun and adorned with waterfalls. One vessel was crushed, though the men were saved. Bewildered among mists and icebergs, Frobisher lost his course and entered Hudson Strait south of the land of gold. Here the admiral believed he could sail through to the Pacific, but he pushed on in a search of the Golden Island, getting in at one gap and out at another, among many dangers from hidden rocks on an unknown coast. When he reached the Countess of Warwick's Sound, the enthusiastic colonists were discouraged, and the sailors were ready to mutiny. One vessel containing much of the provision of the expedition deserted and returned home. The disheartened gold seekers discovered an island, however, containing enough of the supposed gold ore to suffice all the gold gluttons of the world. But no one proposed to colonize it for the benefit of England. The vessels were freighted and returned home. Neither the projectors of the expedition nor the adventurers who embarked upon it tell us how the lading was disposed of. Thus ended the first attempt of the English to colonize America. In 1578, Sir Humphrey Gilbert procured from the Queen a charter which made him proprietary lord of whatever land he might discover and colonize within six years. In 1579, he set sail, accompanied by his half-brother, Walter Raleigh. The loss of a vessel and various misfortunes defeated this venture. Sir Humphrey Gilbert's fortune became too much reduced for him to undertake another expedition. He made various grants of land, but none of them resulted in a successful colony. In 1583, before that patent had expired, Gilbert, assisted by Raleigh again, fitted another fleet for settlement in America. On the eve of his departure, Sir Humphrey Gilbert received from the Queen a token in the form of a golden anchor guided by a lady, clearly showing what her true hopes were. Two days after leaving Plymouth, the largest ship of the fleet, which had been furnished by Raleigh, deserted under the excuse of infectious disease. The commander conducted his remaining vessels to the banks of Newfoundland. He took formal possession of the country, summoning the Spanish and Portuguese fishermen to witness the ceremony. The mineral man, assigned to the fleet, pronounced a certain ore to contain silver. Some of this was carried on board with great secrecy, in order that the Spanish and Portuguese might not suspect its value. A further voyage of discovery along the coast was undertaken, but Gilbert's men were unmanageable. 
Through the carelessness of the sailors, the largest vessel struck, and nearly one hundred persons were lost, with the mineral man and the oar going down as well. It now seemed necessary to return home. Sir Humphrey Gilbert insisted on remaining in the squirrel, the little bark in which he had sailed, on account of its convenience for exploring the coast. He said he would not desert the little crew with which he had encountered so many dangers. The voyage was rough. A more outrageous sea had not been seen by the oldest sailors. Sir Humphrey was seen from the larger vessel sitting on deck with a book in his hand, and when she would approach within hearing he would call out, "'Be of good cheer, my friends. It is as near to heaven by sea as by land.' The little vessel labored painfully in the storm, and about midnight her lights suddenly disappeared, never to be seen again. Raleigh was ambitious to be lord over lands in the New World. He now planned a settlement in a pleasanter climate than that of Newfoundland. From the Queen he obtained as ample a patent as that of his half-brother. Two vessels were freighted with men and provisions. Under the command of Philip Amidas and Arthur Barlow, they followed the circuitous route of the day-by-way of the Canaries and West Indies. When they neared the coast of what is North Carolina today, it was in all its midsummer beauty. The odor which reached them was as if they'd been in the midst of some delicate garden. The smooth sea, dotted with islands, sparkled in the sun. The land was covered with noble trees, festooned with vines. This land seemed a paradise to the colonists, who knew nothing of the terrors of the coast at a more unfavorable season. A settlement was made on the island of Wokukan, and the time was occupied with excursions of discovery. The result of their observations of the savages were that the people were most gentle, loving, and faithful, void of all guile and treason, and such as lived after the manner of the golden age. And yet, strange to say, in their wars they were cruel and bloody, entire tribes being sometimes almost exterminated, and they practiced inviting men to a feast and then murdering them, as the English knew, for the Indians had offered them much booty to participate in such a stratagem against their enemies. After a short stay in the pleasant summer months, the expedition returned to England with glowing accounts of the country. Queen Elizabeth named the new land Virginia, in honor of herself, the Virgin Queen. A fleet of seven vessels with 108 colonists was next set out by Sir Walter Raleigh in 1585, under the command of Sir Richard Grenville. The perils of the North Carolina coast were found to be very great, a settlement was made at Roanoke Island. Almost one of the first acts of the colonists was to destroy an Indian town and standing corn in retaliation for the theft of a silver cup. Sir Richard Grenville sailed away, and the colonists began to explore the country. Lane, the governor, wrote, It is the goodliest soil under the cope of heaven, the most pleasing territory of the world. The continent is of a huge and unknown greatness, and very well peopled though savagely. The wily Indians soon discovered the white man's twofold passion for gold and a passage to the South Sea. One of them told the colonists that the Roanoke River sprang from a rock so near the Pacific that the waves sometimes dashed into its fountain, that the people who lived there understood refining gold, of which there was an abundance in the country, 
and that the walls of their city were made of pearls. This fable coincided with the preconceived notions of Europeans in regard to America. Lane and a band of followers undertook the ascent of the Roanoke River in search of its wonderful fountain. Meanwhile, the Indians, who were jealous of white settlements, prepared to attack the divided colony. The gold seekers toiled up the rapid current of the Roanoke. Their provisions were soon exhausted. Still they persevered, killing and eating their dogs. When this resource failed them, they returned home, just in time to frustrate the plans of the Indians. The savages now proposed to plant no corn in order to starve out the English, who depended upon trade with them for their provisions and food. An old chief, however, objected to this plan. The English had been in the New World nearly a year. They grew more and more fearful of the Indians. They believed that they were forming an alliance with intent to massacre them. They desired an audience of the most influential chief, Winjina, and when admitted to his presence, they fell upon him and his principal warriors and killed them. The colonists were growing restless and homesick, and they had now indeed good reason to fear the Indians. In hopes of a better harbor, they explored toward the north and reached the Chesapeake Bay, long after it had been discovered by the Spanish and named Santa Maria Bay. One day many sails were seen on the horizon. It was Sir Francis Drake's great fleet of 23 vessels returning from a long privateering and exploring cruise. It came to anchor in the wild road of their bad harbor. Sir Francis Drake readily supplied all the wants of the colonists, giving them vessels, persuading two experienced seamen to remain with them, and furnishing every means for them to make further explorations. A sudden storm, though, nearly wrecked the fleet, which was only saved by standing off from the dangerous coast. After the storm, nothing was to be seen of the vessels set aside for the colonists' use. Sir Francis Drake again offered, however, to supply their wants, but with one voice they begged to be taken back to England. Through these colonists, who had learned to smoke in the New World, the use of tobacco was first introduced into England. Sir Walter Raleigh made the practice fashionable. It is related that a servant of his coming into the room with a tankard of ale saw Sir Walter intent on study, with clouds of smoke issuing from his mouth. The man immediately threw the ale in his master's face and ran downstairs, crying that Sir Walter was on fire. A few days after the colonists left Roanoke Island, vessels with provisions landed at the settlement to find it deserted. Grenville left fifteen men to hold the land for its lord. Sir Walter Raleigh now planned to plant an agricultural colony of men with families to be established at Chesapeake Bay. In 1587, he fitted out a fleet at his own expense. Queen Elizabeth, the godmother of Virginia, refusing to contribute to its education. As might have been expected, nothing remained of the little colony at Roanoke Island but bones. The settlement was overgrown with weeds. The commander of the vessels refusing to carry them further, the colony was obliged to plant itself on this sad spot. There was, naturally, trouble with the Indians. The tribe of Manteo, the chief who had visited England, were friendly, and this Indian, according to the commands of Raleigh, was baptized and made a baron with the title of Lord of Roanoke. It may be doubted whether he fully appreciated the honor. 
"'The colony was ill-fated. "'A vessel was sent to England to ask for provisions. "'Raleigh freighted two ships for his colony, "'but in chasing after prizes, "'one vessel was boarded and rifled after a bloody battle, "'and both were forced to return. "'England was in a state of intense excitement "'over the threatened invasion of Spain, "'and Raleigh, Grenville, Lane, "'and all those who had been most interested in colonization "'were now entirely occupied with the prospect of war. Not until three years after the planting of the colony did the expected supplies arrive at Roanoke, which was then a desert. An inscription directed to the island of Croatan, the home of Manteo and the friendly Indians. No search was made further than the island of Roanoke by this expedition, and the fate of the colony is unknown. Raleigh sent many expeditions to search for his lost people, but nothing was discovered of them. There is one statement, though not perhaps to be trusted, that after 21 years of life among the savages, they were murdered by Powhatan at the instigation of his priests or medicine man. In 1602, a direct voyage across the Atlantic was made by Bartholomew Gosnold in a small bark. He discovered Cape Cod and Buzzards Bay, which he called Gosnold's Hope. On a beautiful island covered with grand forests, wild fruits, and sweet flowers, a settlement was planned. On the island is a pond, in which is a little island. On this romantic spot, the colonists built their fort, but the road before them appeared too dangerous. Fearing starvation and dreading the Indians, they resolved to return with Gosnold. They brought back from the New World a load of sassafras root, which was highly valued in the pharmacy of the day. Sassafras was thought to cure syphilis, which was a huge problem of the day. A second expedition was undertaken by Martin Pring in 1603. He explored much of the coast of North Virginia. As New England was then called, we said that Virginia took in a wide swath, and it did, and traded trinkets with the Indians for sassafras. Still another voyage under the command of George Weymouth was made to the shores of North Virginia. All the early voyagers agreed in praising the fertility of the soil and the beauty of the scenery in the new land, and it was to the imagination of people in Europe, like a land of romance and dreams, a new world indeed, as they called it. Coming next, Chapter 2, The Voyage of the Virginia Colony. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. Your Apple listeners, please do take a moment to send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We need those reviews, and we would appreciate that very much. Thank you, and we'll be back next week.